The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 10 The Light in the Weed Now the wind was very violent from the sea, and threatened to blow down our tent, the which indeed it achieved at last as we made an end of a cheerless breakfast. Yet the boatswain bade us not trouble to put it up again, but spread it out with the edges raised upon props made from the reeds, so that we might catch some of the rainwater, for it was becoming imperative that we should renew our supply before putting out again to sea. And whilst some of us were busied about this, he took the others and set up a small tent made of the spare canvas, and under this he sheltered all of our matters like to be harmed by the rain. In a little, the rain continuing very violent, we had near a breaker full of water collected in the canvas, and were about to run it off into one of the breakers when the boatswain cried out to us to hold and first taste the water before we mixed it with that which we had already. At that we put down our hands and scooped up some of the water to taste, and thus we discovered it to be brackish and quite undrinkable, at which I was amazed until the boatswain reminded us that the canvas had been saturated for many days with salt water, so that it would take a great quantity of fresh before all the salt was washed out. Then he told us to lay it flat upon the beach and scour it well on both sides with the sand, which we did, and afterwards let the rain rinse it well, whereupon the next water that we caught we found to be near fresh, though not sufficiently so for our purpose. Yet when we had rinsed it once more, it became clear of the salt, so that we were able to keep all that we caught further. And then, something before noon, the rain ceased to fall, though coming again at odd times in short squalls. Yet the wind died not, but blew steadily, and continued so from that quarter during the remainder of the time that we were upon the island. Upon the ceasing of the rain, the boatswain called us all together, that we might make a decent burial of the unfortunate lad, whose remains had laid during the night upon one of the bottom boards of the boat. After a little discussion, it was decided to bury him in the beach, for the only part where there was soft earth was in the valley, and none of us had a stomach for that place. Moreover, the sand was soft and easy to dig, and as we had no proper tools, this was a great consideration. Presently, using the bottom boards and the oars and the hatchet, we had a place large and deep enough to hold the boy, and into this we placed him. We made no prayer over him, but stood about the grave for a little space in silence. Then the boatswain signed to us to fill in the sand, 
and therewith we covered up the poor lad and left him to his sleep. And presently we made our dinner, after which the bosun served out to each one of us a very sound tot of the rum, for he was minded to bring us back again to a cheerful state of mind. After we had sat a while smoking, the bosun divided us into two parties to make a search through the island among the rocks, perchance we should find water collected from the rain among the hollows and crevices. For though we had gotten some through our device with the sail, yet we had by no means caught sufficient for our needs. He was especially anxious for haste in that the sun had come out again, for he was feared that such small pools as we should find would be speedily dried up by its heat. Now the bosun headed one party and set the big seamen over the other, bidding all to keep their weapons very handy. Then he set out to the rocks about the base of the nearer hill, sending the others to the farther and greater one, and in each party we carried an empty breaker slung from a couple of the stout reeds, so that we might put all such driblets as we should find straight away into it before they had time to vanish into the hot air. And for the purpose of bailing up the water, we had brought with us our tin pannikins and one of the boat's bailers. In a while, and after much scrambling amid the rocks, we came upon a little pool of water that was remarkably sweet and fresh, and from this we removed near three gallons before it became dry, and after that we came across maybe five or six others, but not one of them near so big as the first. Yet we were not displeased, for we had near three parts filled the breaker, and so we made back to the camp, having some wonder as to the luck of the other party. When we came near the camp, we found the others returned before us, seeming in a very high content with themselves, so that we had no need to call to them as to whether they had filled their breaker. When they saw us, they set out to us at a run to tell us that they had come upon a great basin of fresh water in a deep hollow, a third of the distance up the side of the far hill, and at this the bosun bade us put down our breaker and make all of us to the hill so that he might examine for himself whether their news was so good as it seemed. Presently, being guided by the other party, we passed around to the back of the far hill and discovered it to go upward to the top at an easy slope, with many ledges and broken places, so that it was scarce more difficult than a stair to climb. And so, having climbed perhaps ninety or a hundred feet, we came suddenly upon the place which held the water, and found that they had not made too much of their discovery. For the pool was near twenty feet long by twelve broad, and so clear as though it had come from a fountain, yet it had considerable depth, as we discovered by thrusting a spear shaft down into it. Now the bosun, having seen for himself how good a supply of water there was for our needs, seemed very much relieved in his mind, and declared that within three days at the most we might leave the island, at which we felt none of us any regret. Indeed, had the boat escaped harm, we had been able to leave that same day, but this could not be, for there was much to be done before we had her seaworthy again. 
Having waited until the bosun had made complete his examination, we turned to descend, thinking that this would be the bosun's intention. But he called to us to stay, and looking back, we saw that he made to finish the ascent of the hill. At that, we hastened to follow him, though we had no notion of his reason for going higher. Presently, we were come to the top, and here we found a very spacious place, nicely level, save that in one or two parts it was crossed by deepish cracks, maybe half a foot to a foot wide, and perhaps three to six fathoms long. But apart from these and some great boulders, it was, as I have mentioned, a spacious place. Moreover, it was bone dry and pleasantly firm under one's feet, after so long, upon the sand. I think, even thus early, I had some notion of the boatswain's design, for I went to the edge that overlooked the valley, and peered down, and finding it nigh a sheer precipice, found myself nodding my head as though it were in accordance with some part-formed wish. Presently, looking about me, I discovered the boatswain to be surveying that part which looked over towards the weed, and I made a cross to join him. Here again, I saw that the hill fell away very sheer, and after that we went across to the seaward edge, and there it was near as abrupt as on the weed side. Then, having by this time thought a little upon the matter, I put it straight to the boatswain, that here would make indeed a very secure camping place, with nothing to come at us upon our sides or back, and our front, where was the slope, could be watched with ease. And this I put to him with great warmth, for I was mortally in dread of the coming night. Now, when I had made an end of speaking, the boatswain disclosed to me that this was, as I had suspicion, his intent and immediately he called to the men that we should haste down and ship our camp to the top of the hill. At that the men expressed their approbation, and we made haste every one of us to the camp and began straightway to move our gear to the hilltop. In the meanwhile the boatswain, taking me to assist him, set to again upon the boat, being intent to get his batten nicely shaped and fit to the side of the keel, so that it would bed well to the keel but more particularly to the plank which had sprung outward from its place. And at this he labored the greater part of that afternoon, using the little hatchet to shape the wood, which he did with surprising skill. Yet when the evening was come, he had not brought it to his liking. But it must not be thought that he did not but work at the boat, for he had the men to direct, and once he had to make his way to the top of the hill to fix the place for the tent. And after the tent was up, he set them to carry the dry weed to the new camp, and at this he kept them until near dusk, for he had vowed never again to be without a sufficiency of fuel. But two of the men he sent to collect shellfish, putting two of them to the task, because he would not have one alone upon the island, not knowing but that there might be danger, even though it were bright day, and a most happy ruling it proved, for a little past the middle of the afternoon we heard them shouting at the other end of the valley, and not knowing but that they were in need of assistance, we ran with all haste to discover the reason for their calling, passing upon the right-hand side of the blackened and sodden vale. Upon reaching the further beach, we saw a most incredible sight, for the two men were running towards us through the thick masses of the weed, 
While no more than four or five fathoms behind, they were pursued by an enormous crab. Now I had thought the crab we had tried to capture before coming to the island a prodigy unsurpassed, but this creature was more than treble its size, seeming as though a prodigious table were a chase of them. And moreover, spite of its wondrous bulk, it made better way over the weed than I should have conceived to be possible, running almost sideways and with one enormous claw raised near a dozen feet into the air. Now, whether omitting accidents, the men would have made good their escape to the firmer ground of the valley, where they could have attained to a greater speed, I do not know, but suddenly one of them tripped over a loop of the weed, and the next instant lay helpless upon his face. He had been dead the following moment but for the pluck of his companion, who faced round manfully upon the monster and ran at it with his twenty-foot spear. It seemed to me that the spear took it about a foot below the overhanging armor of the great back shell, and I could see that it penetrated some distance into the creature the man having, by the aid of providence, stricken it in a vulnerable part. Upon receiving this thrust, the mighty crab ceased at once its pursuit and clipped at the haft of the spear with its great mandible, snapping the weapon more easily than I had done the same thing to a straw. By the time we had raced up to the men, the one who had stumbled was again upon his feet, and turning to assist his comrade, but the boatswain snatched his spear from him and leapt forward himself, for the crab was making now at the other man. Now the boatswain did not attempt to thrust the spear into the monster, but instead he made two swift blows at the great protruding eyes, and in a moment the creature had curled itself up helpless, save that the huge claw waved about aimlessly. At that the boatswain drew us off, though the man who had attacked the crab desired to make an end of it, averring that we should get some very good eating out of it. But to this the boatswain would not listen, telling him it was yet capable of very deadly mischief did any but come within reach of its prodigious mandible. And after this he bade them look no more for shellfish, but take out the two fishing lines which we had and see if they could catch aught from some safe ledge on the further side of the hill upon which we had made our camp. Then he returned to his mending of the boat. It was a little before the evening came down upon the island that the boatswain ceased work, and after that he called to the men who, having made an end of their fuel carrying, were standing near to place the full breakers, which we had not thought needful to carry up to the new camp on account of their weight, under the upturned boat, some holding up the gunwale whilst the others pushed them under. Then the boatswain laid the unfinished batten along with them, and we lowered the boat again over all, trusting to its weight to prevent any creature from meddling with aught. After that, we made it once to the camp, being wearifully tired, and with a hearty anticipation of supper, Upon reaching the hilltop, the men whom the boatswain had sent with the lines came to show him a very fine fish, something like to a huge kingfish, which they had caught a few minutes earlier. This the boatswain, after examining, did not hesitate to pronounce fit for food, whereupon they set to and opened and cleaned it. 
Now, as I have said, it was not unlike a great kingfish, and like it had a mouth full of very formidable teeth, the use of which I understood the better when I saw the contents of its stomach, which seemed to consist of nothing but the coiled tentacles of squid or cuttlefish, with which I have shown the weed continent swarmed. When these were upset upon the rock, I was confounded to perceive the length and thickness of some of them, and could only conceive that this particular fish must be a very desperate enemy to them, and able successfully to attack monsters of a bulk infinitely greater than its own. After this, and whilst the supper was preparing, the boatswain called to some of the men to put up a piece of the spare canvas upon a couple of the reeds, so as to make a screen against the wind, which up there was so fresh that it came near at times to scattering the fire abroad. This they found not difficult, for a little on the windward side of the fire there ran one of the cracks of which I had made previous mention, and into this they jammed the supports, and so in a very little time had the fire screened. Presently the supper was ready, and I found the fish to be very fair eating, though somewhat coarse, but this was no great matter for concern with so empty a stomach as I contained. And here I would remark that we made our fishing save our provisions through all our stay on the island. Then, after we had come to an end of our eating, we lay down to a most comfortable smoke, for we had no fear of attack at that height, and with precipices upon all sides save that which lay in front. Yet so soon as we had rested and smoked a while, the boatswain set the watches, for he would run no risk through carelessness. By this time the night was drawing on apace, yet it was not so dark but that one could perceive matters at a very reasonable distance. Presently, being in a mood that tended to thoughtfulness, and feeling a desire to be alone for a little, I strolled away from the fire to the leeward edge of the hilltop. Here I paced up and down a while, smoking and meditating. Anon I would stare out across the immensity of the vast continent of weed and slime that stretched its incredible desolation out beyond the darkening horizon, and there would come the thought to me of the terror of men whose vessels had been entangled among its strange growths. And so my thoughts came to the lone derelict that lay out there in the dusk, and I fell to wondering what had been the end of her people and at that I grew yet more solemn in my heart. For it seemed to me that they must have died at last by starvation, and if not by that, then by the act of some one of the devil creatures which inhabited that lonely weed world. And then, even as I fell upon this thought, the boatswain clapped me upon the shoulder and told me in a very hearty way to come to the light of the fire and banish all melancholy thoughts. For he had a very penetrating discernment, and had followed me quietly from the camping place, having had reason once or twice before to chide me for gloomy meditations. And for this, and many other matters, I had grown to like the man, the which I could almost believe at times was his regarding of me, but his words were too few for me to gather his feelings, though I had hoped that they were as I surmised. And so I came back to the fire, and presently, it not being my time to watch until after midnight, I turned into the tent for a spell of sleep, having first arranged a comfortable spread of some of the softer portions of the dry weed to make me a bed. Now I was very full of sleep, so that I slept heavily, 
and in this wise heard not the man on watch call the bosun. Yet the rousing of the others waked me, and so I came to myself and found the tent empty, at which I ran very hurriedly to the doorway, and so discovered that there was a clear moon in the sky, the which, by reason of the cloudiness that had prevailed, we had been without for the past two nights. Moreover, the sultriness had gone, the wind having blown it away with the clouds. Yet, though maybe I appreciated this, it was but in a half-conscious manner, for I was put about to discover the whereabouts of the men and the reason of their leaving the tent. With this purpose, I stepped out from the entrance and the following instant discovered them all in a clump beside the leeward edge of the hilltop. At that I held my tongue, for I knew not but that silence might be their desire. But I ran hastily over to them and inquired of the boatswain what manner of thing it was which called them from their sleep. And he for answer pointed out into the greatness of the weed continent. At that I stared out over the breadth of the weed, showing very ghostly in the moonlight, but for the moment I saw not the thing to which he purposed to draw my attention. Then suddenly it fell within the circle of my gaze, a little light out in the lonesomeness. For the space of some moments I stared with bewildered eyes, then it came to me with abruptness that the light shone from the lone derelict lying out in the weed, the same that upon that very evening I had looked with sorrow and awe, because at the end of those who had been in her, and now, behold, a light burning, seemingly within one of her after cabins, though the moon was scarce powerful enough to enable the outline of the hulk to be seen clear of the rounding wilderness. And from this time until the day we had no more sleep, but made up the fire and sat round it full of excitement and wonder, and getting up continually to discover if the light still burned. This it ceased to do about an hour after I had first seen it, but it was the more proof that some of our kind were no more than the half of a mile from our camp. And at last the day came. You've been listening to The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson. Read by Paul R. Potts. This audio recording is made available under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 2.5 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Links for the project can be found at thepottshouse.org. The music for Chapter 10 is by Samsa from the album A Forest Without Trees. This work is available at darkwinter.com. Sound effects are taken from the album Thaw, field recordings from Minnesota, available at wanderingear.com. <laughs>